Good morning. So I want to uh, say two things as we get started today. Uh, the first is that um, congratulations to all the seniors that are here. Um, it's, it's incredibly exciting where y'all are headed, and we are proud of you and praying for you and connected with you as you go, and that will continue. Uh, second thing, uh, just to make clear, because this came up in a question earlier today that was sort of funny, was uh, someone saying to me uh, that they thought that they knew a senior who was graduating who wasn't up in front. And that's because we divided the seniors into two and had about half of them commissioned at the 9.30 service day and about half that were here, okay? The reason I say that is to stop the rumor mill because there was sort of this glint in the person's eye of like, I didn't know if they were gonna make it or not. Like, and you're going, no, 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 they're probably just at like the other service, right? It's not that. So if you thought uh, that, that let's just assume the best, let's not assume that they didn't make it, let's just assume at 9.30 they were recognized and, and God have mercy on your soul, right? Like for all of that. So just wanted to make that clear. Anyway, the scripture passage that we're going to be in today is concluding a series that we have been in for the last few weeks. Next week, we're actually jumping straight uh, immediately into our summer teaching series, which is called Stories of God, which we're really excited about and looking forward to getting into with you. But today is the conclusion of a series that we've entitled Coming Home, Coming Home. And this has been three weeks where we've been looking at one particular part of one chapter of the Bible, one parable Jesus tells from Luke chapter 15. And if you've been here the last two weeks, one of the ways that we've been uh, approaching this and one of the questions we've been asking is, what's the right way to understand this parable? What's the right framework or even title for it? Because it's known in different ways and the different ways it's known are important. As we talked about in week one, the most common way um, is that is known as the parable of the prodigal son. And this painting that is up is a painting by Rembrandt that is entitled The Return of the Prodigal. And we said that the way it's commonly known is by the kneeling younger son who is there. The return of the prodigal son. We said that this is a proper way to understand it. If that's how you've heard it or if that's how you think of it, that's a proper way to understand it. This is this young son, the younger of two sons, who says to his dad, I wish you were dead. And the reason I wish you were dead is because I know what's right. I know what my truth is. I know what my beliefs are. I know what my values are. I know how to live my life. I know the things that will make me happy. I know the parts of the Bible that I agree with, and I know the parts that I don't, and so I just say that it's irrelevant. Why? Who's the expert on that? I am. Because I know what's right for me. I know what my truth is, as if there's such a thing, as a truth that's sub you know, subjective of you versus you. It doesn't even make sense. I know what my truth is. You have your truth, I have my truth. Well, that's, that's nonsense, that means nothing. It means nothing. This prodigal lives in all of us, we said. All of us, all of us who sit there and say, this is the way I do things, these are the ways that I'll, inter I'll interact with the world, this is how uh, I'm gonna live. I'm an expert on what's right for me and my life and my family. I know the values by which I'll raise my kids, I know the methods by which I'll do, this is how I do things. That's the younger son. It lives in all of us. And what we said is we have to be able to recognize that and to see it and to hear that God's response to that is not like to wag a, a, a finger of righteousness at us, but it's to 
welcome us home. It says that when the prodigal had gone, he learned what many of us has learned. I know that I have learned it in my life, that the promise of what life could be if it could just be the way I want it to be is never as good as the reality. Like the reality is always worse than I think it's going to be, Right? The reality of what life on my terms like is not nearly as fun and not nearly as happy, not nearly as joyful and not, you know, as I think it's going to be beforehand. And the younger son learns this and he wastes half of the family fortune. Half of it is gone. And when he returns to his own home, the home of his father, just hoping to be accepted as a slave so he won't starve to death, the father, as we see here, goes and embraces his wayward son, and welcomes him back into the family. So if you've heard this as the parable of the prodigal son, that's a proper way of of looking at it. What does it mean for you to come home in those places in your heart? But as we said last week, some people are like, no, it's not supposed to be known as the parable of the prodigal son. The Bibles that we have around here at Covenant, the editors don't call this parable the parable of the prodigal son. They call it the parable of the prodigal and his brother. Because there's two sons to this father. The second one is the figure on the right, the one who is distant and removed, the one who kind of in a cold gesture has his hands together. This is the elder son, and he is the exact opposite of his prodigal brother. The older son is the rule follower. As the younger brother says, I know the rules and I need everybody to know I'm breaking all of the rules because I'm doing it my way. The older brother is the responsible one. He follows the rules. He does what his father says. He, he, he uh, is the one, the model child that other parents could look at being, looking at their kids going, you could be like that. Like, I wish you were more like him, right? He does everything right. But what we see in all of his righteousness and all of his rule following is that when his younger brother comes back and the father embraces him and throws him a party, we see something that, is, that Rembrandt depicts here, something that is cold and dark that erupts in this self-righteous rule follower. Something that is, is um, contradictory to everything that God is about. And we said that this Rule follower, this self-righteous one lives in all of us as well. All of us have this older brother in us. The part where we're justified because we know how to do it right. And we think we need to be recognized for that. We start seeing other people's competition. We start enjoying it a little bit when other people suffer. These are the, the, the things. We don't feel a connection because we stand on our own. Other people are the measuring stick. Am I as good as him or not? Did I get invited to this or not? Am I included in this or not? Am I getting the same awards and recognition or not? These are the things that the the older brothers in us do, the rule followers do. And it's important for us to see that in the end, the elder brother is as wayward and lost because he follows all the rules and trusts in that as the prodigal is. We said, where does that live in us? Where do we have that self-righteous older brother in us? Where have our hearts grown cold in that kind of way? And to see that the good news is that the father's response is the same as with the younger brother. The father leaves the party that he's throwing for his younger son and goes out to the self-righteous, indignant older brother and goes and invites him to come home as well. So if you think about this as this parable of the prodigal and his brother, that also is an accurate way of approaching the scripture passage in this parable. But finally, there are others who are saying both of these are wrong. It's not primarily about the prodigal, and it's not primarily about the prodigal and his brother. That's what human beings do. We have to make everything about us, right? So it's like, that's why we assume that this parable is not truly about either son. This parable is about the father. The one here that Rembrandt shows embracing his younger son. And the love of the father 
which is the story of heroism that is in this passage. And it is that, the love of the Father, that I want us to spend a few minutes reflecting on today. Okay? The scripture passage that's going to guide us is the last two verses of this parable from Luke 15. This is after the father leaves the party to address his self-righteous elder son, but it really encaptures how he addresses both of his sons, okay? And this is what he says to him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me for a second? Lord, we ask that no matter who we are, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, that you would speak to us today and that we would sense and feel your love for us, for all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So there's an assumption that we've made every week of this parable. The assumption is, number one, that we can see ourselves in both of these sons, right? And I hope that you've been able to do that, to see yourself, to see parts of these sons that live in us. But the other assumption we've made is that the father is a a, a depiction and embodiment of who? Who is the father? All right, good. We got that part. Absolutely, 100% right. The assumption we're making here is that while we are both sons, that the Father is the embodiment of God, that the Father is the embodiment of, no matter who we are, this gracious response of arms wide welcoming his wayward children home. Now, we need to stop on that for a second. We need to stop on that for a second because there's a potential danger for Christians and people in the church to just sort of gloss over this fact. We kind of gloss over the love of God because I think one of the main reasons is because we've heard it so much, it doesn't seem that new or that even that bold of a claim anymore, right? We sing this whenever we baptize a child here. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Like, I've heard this before. Okay, let's move on to new territory. Let's move on to things I haven't thought about before. Let's open my mind to new ideas. And if that good news of God's love doesn't constantly sweep us off our feet, it means that we're not really paying attention to it anymore. Because this parable tells us some incredible things that are kind of mind-blowing about about the love of God, about the character of God, about the heart that God has for all of us. And I want to spend a couple of minutes in that right now. Because we need to dwell in it for a little while. We need to sit in this for a little while. There's things in this parable that almost seem counterintuitive about God, right? They, they, They change some ways maybe you think about God. For example... One of the things that we see when this parable depicts the father is that the father is not some passive bystander when his children go off. When the younger son goes off to a distant land, it's not like the father's going, well, we'll see if he comes back. I'm going to keep going on with my life. It depicts the father completely differently. God's not distant from wherever you are right now. That it depicts God as one who's like constantly scanning the horizon for if and when this, this, this wayward child will come back, right? It's like God is sitting there twiddling his thumbs, he's tapping his fingers nervously, he's looking constantly. And as soon as the younger son appears on the horizon, the father's the first one who sees him and goes running for him. I have people all the time, and I feel this in my life, friends, who are like, God doesn't feel close, I feel distant from God. I can't hear God right now. It's it's comforting to me, and it's important for me to realize that when I feel distant from God, it's not because God isn't looking for me. It's not because God's not speaking to me. It's usually because I'm living in a distant land and then life starts going bad. I'm like, well, I just don't hear God anymore, right? Because I haven't been looking for God. 
And what does it mean to sit there and to revel in the fact that God paying attention to us is far more consistent than us paying attention to God? That's good news. That's an amazing way to think about God. Or take the idea that God's love for his people, for you and for me, isn't particularly dignified. I love that because sometimes we have this idea like we're in church and we're supposed to do things a certain way. There's a, there's a solemn way we approach God and, you know, and it needs to be respectful and it needs to be decently and in order and it needs to follow the rules and I must have the proper. And certainly there's parts of the scripture that lead us to believe that. But Jesus' parable here doesn't depict God that way. It depicts someone whose love for his children is undignified. It says that when he sees his younger son on the horizon, the father runs to his son. And as we said in week one, the robes that the father would have worn didn't allow his legs to run. The robes were too constricting. And so to run, the father would have had to hike his robe up, right? Exposing some old bare legs that probably had not seen the sun in a long time, right? And yet he doesn't care what anyone thinks. He doesn't care how it looks. He runs with his robe up, exposing his legs to go and embrace it. It's an undignified kind of love. It's an amazing kind of love that God... Have you ever loved someone so much you didn't care what other people thought? Like, have you ever felt so in love with somebody, or have you ever felt your heart so captivated, maybe by uh, a spouse, maybe by someone you're dating, maybe by uh, your children, maybe by whoever it is, where you just didn't care anymore how it looked to other people, because you were so focused on expressing that love. This is how God's love looks like in this parable. Isn't that amazing? Like, I don't think about God's love that way. Like many of you, I spend a whole lot of time on what does this look like and how are people going to see this and what is it, you know, how am I, what's the image we're creating here and, and, and what are, how are people going to respond when they see me do this or say this or when we put this picture on Facebook, is it going to look like we're the perfect family or does it show some of our flaws? So let's find another picture that we put up. Like this is the world we live in and it is like a freedom that you see in the love of God here that goes, I don't care what anybody thinks, I am running to you. I don't care what the neighbors think when my son won't enter the party and that is a public disgrace to me. I'm not concerned with how the neighbors are gossiping. The father just leaves the party and goes outside. His only intent is to shower his children with love. It's incredible. Like when you stop and think about the fact that that's how God looks at us. That's how God values us. That's, that's amazing. I mean, that should just sweep us off our feet. It's like, well, I'm the older son and the younger son. That's right. And my love for you has no dignity. It's so deep. Or take the idea that God throws a party. Again, this is God. We must approach this way. Here are the right ways that God acts. We must be holy as we enter the presence of God. Well, yes, there's, there's some truth in that in the scriptures, but this parable doesn't show God that way. God throws an enormous party when his son comes back. A huge party that you can hear the volume of and the music of as people are outside coming in from the fields. It's so loud. The best food, the best music, everything that is going to draw people. He writes the neighbors. Everybody comes in. And you stop and think about it. That doesn't feel like God, right? Parties and God's love are not things I put together in the same sentence all the time. But the New Testament says I should. Jesus tells another parable. He says, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? You want to know what heaven is like? It's like a great banquet feast. It's not this thing where we all sit here in a dignified manner. It's a feast. It's a feast that everybody's invited to come in. And there's music and there's food and there's stuff to drink. And it's going to be this great time and a celebration. And just, you know, it's going to be wonderful. Or Jesus, his first miracle, for example, is where he goes to a wedding. 
And they've been celebrating for a couple days. Usually we celebrate for a few hours at a wedding and then we're exhausted and go home. This wedding party had been going for days. And Jesus' first miracle as it's winding down is to turn water into wine. Why? To show off his divine power? No, because he wants the party to keep going. He's like, this is, it's serious. This is, this is worth celebrating. These people have made a covenant relationship with God and with each other. We should, so heaven erupts with celebrations at this. And, and we kind of look at it as like, well, we'll have a committee study. What we should, it's like, no, no, this is like when we truly understand that we are both the elder son and the younger son, that these people live in us and are in our hearts and God's love for us is, it is undignified and says you are worthy of a banquet. We should sit there and go, wow. Anybody? That was a Presbyterian response. <laughs> wow, friends, wow. We will, we will analyze that for a while. No, man, this is like, this is the best I can, you know, this is the best news you will ever hear in all your life. If you truly know that these sons live in you and you hear God's response, for the rest of your life, you will never hear something that good again, that God loves you that much. And if it becomes... <laughs> We just went a little Pentecostal. <laughs> and I liked it. It was fun. Seriously, this is like, this should just sweep us off our feet every day. It can't be Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the greatest news ever. It's worth reveling in every day when we understand who we are. This isn't the story of a prodigal, or even a prodigal and his brother at his heart. At heart, this is a story of the reflection of God's love. It's good news, Luke says. It's gospel that needs to be told. And that's what I want to end with, friends. That's what I want to end this parable with, is the idea that, yes, we are to receive this love. We are to celebrate it. We are to revel in it. We are to bow down before it. We are to weep because of it. We are welcomed home all the time. But we're lastly called to also reflect it. I want you to, I want to close with this. It's not enough in Christianity just to be a consumer. We can't just be a consumer of the love of God. But ultimately, we also have to be one who reflects that love. That's what we call missional living. That's the kind of living that gives us purpose. Whether you're retired or not, whether you're male or female, whether you're young or old, whether you're in school or not, this is why we exist. To receive the love of God and to share it, to reflect it with the world around us. And this is our call this day. This is our call this week. Not just to receive the love of the Father, but indeed to reflect the love of the Father. To reflect the love of the Father with a world around us that desperately needs to hear about its value and its worth and its love. Not because it says it's important. We have a lot of people right now going, I'm a very important person. No, not because I declare myself to be, because God declares me to be. We need people to hear that message. Jesus makes this connection when he teaches us how to pray. In the Lord's Prayer, he says that, you know, Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. Jesus is making this link going, it's not just enough for you to be forgiving. You have to then become an agent of forgiveness. You, you don't just receive it, but you reflect it. Or take, for example, the Apostle Paul when he writes that we are heirs of the kingdom of God. He says, as heirs of the kingdom of God, you now are inheritors, which goes with this passage pretty well. 
Inheritors of the kingdom of God. He says that you are heirs of his suffering, you are heirs of his glory, and you are heirs of his ministry. The ministry of God is now your ministry. You are to reflect it to the world. Or as C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he says that the ultimate point of Christi- for Christians is to become what he calls little Christ. That we are to be little Christ, little Jesus running around Austin. We are to be little Christ who are reflecting the love of God to our schools, to our city, to our neighborhoods, to our places of work. To be little Christ, reflectors of God's love. So how does that happen? How do we do that? How do you become a reflector of the love of the Father rather than just being a son who's welcomed home? How do you do that? Well, and we got there's one footnote to this. The footnote is this. For some of you, when you hear this, your heart comes alive a little bit, right? Your heart comes alive because you're like, okay, we were getting a little touchy-feely there. You were getting really excited about the love of God. It made me a little uncomfortable. Um, let's get back to kind of the tangible nuts and bolts, action steps, what we can do. That, you know, I can get my kids to school on time. I can take a science final exam and do pretty well in it. I can balance a budget. I can manage people at work. Give me the action steps, right? Finally, love of the Father. How do I reflect it? What do I do? This is the danger. This is the danger because that is the path of who? That's the path of the elder son. Give me rules. Thank goodness there's rules and action steps. Somebody tell me what to do because I'm going to go do it. This is not about reflecting the love of the Father. It's not about action steps. It's about imitation. What it's saying is the way that you become to reflect the Father's love is to constantly never forget that you are one of these sons. To constantly every day be aware that these sons live in us and that God's response to our waywardness is arms wide open. And all God's saying is don't be a hypocrite. It's not saying go learn some new steps. It's to reflect what you've received. So God's saying, imitate me. Imitate me. What I do, you should do. What I do for you, you go do for somebody else. It's not about learning the steps. It's about imitation. It's about apprenticeship. And Henry Nouwen says, if you want to know the one thing, the one thing to imitate, it's found in verse 31, which we just read. Six of the most powerful words that probably sum up the character and heart of God more than any others in Scripture. Where in verse 31, the father looks at his self-righteous elder son and says, you have always been with me. And these magnificent words, and all that I have is yours. Now and says, if you want to know the one thing to reflect that sums up God's love, it's those words, all that I have is yours. This is the love of God. That the love of God is not just about kind of warm fuzzies that make us feel better in emotions. That the love of God is, is, is embodied in Jesus. That God's love for us is not a feeling that God has. It's an action that God takes. It's God giving his most prized possession, his only begotten son, into the world saying, Here, all that I have is yours. All that I have. All that I value. The most important thing, all that I have I share with you. I hold nothing back from you. All that I have is yours. These are the sentiments of the heart of the Father. All that I have is yours. What would it mean for you to live that way? What would it mean for you to take that one value and if nothing else say, this is the value which I will share with the world. All that I have is yours. 
What does it mean with your resources, with your money, with your finances to look at this creation, to look at this city, to look at a society where we're seeing an increasing gap between the few who have much and the many who have little and saying here, my response is all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours, what to, is, is, is my neighbor's. What does it mean when we share our blessings? When you look at the blessings that exist in your life, when you stop and think, what are the things you're thankful for? What are the things God has given you? Rather than sitting there going, boy, am I really blessed, is to, to, to receive that, but then to, to look at the rest of the world going, well, how do I share that? All that I've been given is yours. All that I have is held open-handed like this. Come and receive it. Come and take. What would it mean in our, our neighborhoods where most of us do not know the names and much about the people that live right around us in our apartments or in our dorms or in our neighborhoods where we are isolated from one another in our fortresses of solitude? What would it mean to look at our neighbors and to see our homes and to see what, where God's put us and say to our neighbors, here, all that I have is yours. All that we have in this home, we share. This is what, all that I have is yours. What would it mean to do that with relationships? In a world where social media in wondrous ways has allowed us to know who's invited and who's not, who's in and who's not, who's on which side of the line, who votes the right way and who doesn't, where we are now in a place where we are more divided, where we are more alienated from one another than probably almost any time in recent memory to look at our neighbors and to look at our world and to look at our communities and to look at our relationship and whether they vote the right way or think the right way or look the right way or went to the right colleges or have the right attitudes, to look at the people in our lives and say, here, all that I have is yours. This is the counterculture. This is the way that we're called to live. This is what causes us to shine like stars in the midst of the world in which we live today. It is these found in these simple words here. This is the love of the Father that I'm called to reflect. All that I have is yours. Friends, to live this way, to live with open hands, is good news as well. Because we're not just the sons and daughters who are wayward that can come home. That is good news. But living as the father in this parable is how we stay home. And that is good news too. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to close with a prayer and a benediction. I want to invite you guys just to stand.